I want to ask you guys a question. And you may not know the answer, but do you know how many hairs are on your head? Have you ever counted them? Have you ever tried? I haven't tried either, but look at mine. I can see the top of my hair. So I don't have as many hairs as I used to. When I was a, when I was at your age and when I was a teenager, I had a hard time putting my comb through my hair. My hair was so thick. And so that's why I'm so thankful that I still have some hair left on top. Because when I was a kid, my dad, he didn't have any hair up here. And I was like, oh, God, please, 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 please. So at least it looks like I still have hair. But I wanted to teach to read you something, though, about hair and the numbers of hairs. Let me read you. It's out of the Bible. It's so crazy. I didn't know this until I read it in the Bible. It says. Yeah, where is it? There it is. It says. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your heavenly father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows that number. Fear not, therefore, because you are far more valuable than many sparrows. God knows how many hairs are on my head. God cares about me so much. He knows everything about me. He sees everything about me. And it says that we are worth more than sparrows. What are sparrows? I don't know either. I'll show you, though. Mr. Craig, can you bring up that slide on the screen? You see the bird that's on the left-hand side? That's a sparrow. You see the bird that's on the right-hand side? What's that? That's a chickadee. Why am I showing you a chickadee? Because we don't have sparrows in Alaska. If we do, I've never seen one. The ladies who know are shaking their head. Pastor does not know there are sparrows in Alaska. He just doesn't know. Some are only, so they come in and then leave. I didn't know that. But chickadees are here all the time. And the, what I did learn about chickadees are the reason chickadees can stay here all the time is because they actually, they actually store up food. They spend the summertime gathering seeds and they store up food so that they have seeds to take care of them during the wintertime when nothing's growing. God has provided for them because he taught them how to store up seeds. But sparrows don't have that ability. But God takes care of the sparrows. God takes care of the chickadees. And this is something I wanted to teach you guys this morning about sparrows and chickadees, because we don't have sparrows that much, but we have chickadees all the place, all over the place. You can see chickadees any time of the day throughout the year. They're flying everywhere. And I want to tell you something that you can remember whenever you see a chickadee. I have to read it because I don't remember all the names. There was a, a woman and her name. It was kind of a crazy name. I've never heard this before. Her name was Sevilla. Have you ever heard that kind of a name before? Sevilla, that was her first name, and her last name was Martin. Her name is Sevilla Martin, and she wrote a song. And the song talked about not being afraid, and not worrying, and not being sad, and not being discouraged. And Mrs. Martin, Sevilla, and her husband, they went to visit some friends of theirs, Mr. and Mrs. Doolittle. Isn't that a crazy name? A lot of crazy names. Mr. and Mrs. Doolittle lived in a place called Elmira, New York. And Mr. Doolittle, 
He had to get around in a wheelchair all day long. He couldn't use his legs. And Mrs. Doolittle, not only couldn't she use her legs, she couldn't even get out of bed. All day long, she had to stay in bed. And this was for 20 years she had to stay in her bed because she couldn't get out of bed. So her husband had to try and take care of her, but he was in a wheelchair. And even though they had these kind of problems, they were always happy and they were always cheerful. And Mrs. Martin and Mr. Martin came to visit them. And Mr. Martin said to Mrs. Doolittle, How can you stay so joyful and so happy when you have so many problems in your life? And Mrs. Doolittle said, if God has his eye on the sparrow, then I know God is watching me. And guess what happened? Sevilla, Mrs. Mrs. Uh, Martin, went home that night after hearing Mrs. Doolittle say that. And she kept thinking about that. If God has his eye on the sparrow, then I can know that God has his eyes on me. Because in the Bible, like I just read it to you, Jesus said, you're worth much more than sparrows. And God knows about the sparrows. God knows about you. He knows so much about you. He even knows how many hairs are on your head. And Mrs. Sevilla Martin was thinking about that all night. And she wrote a poem. And the poem she wrote... She then sent it to a friend of hers who knew how to do music. And he wrote music for that poem. And I thought I had it marked, but I don't. Hold on just a second. 103. I thought it was 108. That's, thank you. 103. And that song got put into our hymnals, and it's called His Eye is on the Sparrow. Folks, if you want to look it up, it's in hymn hymn number 103 in the book. But I want to teach it to you this morning. So I'm going to teach you how to sing it, and you guys are going to help me, okay? Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home when Jesus is my portion, my constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. And I sing because I'm happy, and I sing because I'm free, for his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Do you guys ever get scared? Do you guys ever get sad? Do you guys ever get lonely sometimes? Anytime you feel upset, scared, discouraged, sad, remember, God loves you, and God sees you, and he cares for you just like he cares for the chickadees. And anytime you start feeling sad, you can think about this song. 
His eyes are... I mean, why? I mean, I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eyes on the sparrow. And I know He watches me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank You for this promise that you are watching over us and taking care of us. And Father, whenever we feel discouraged, afraid, worried, sad, we can literally look out of our window and see a chickadee flitting about and recognize that your word says we are worth much more than two chickadees and you care about the chickadees and you care about us so we can trust you. And we can stop worrying and stop being sad and stop being fearful and just put our, tr- our hope and our trust in you. Father, thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now I have some sad news for you. Your teacher couldn't get out of her house today because her driveway was too icy. Miss Jamie. And so you guys are not going to have class today. You're going to have to go sit with your folks. Okay? You did? All right. So go ahead and take a seat with your folks. And I promise my sermon won't be too boring. I want you guys, if you have your Bibles, to turn to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. This was not coordinated, but Elsie chose the exact scripture that I was going to have us read this morning. But I want to read it again because you didn't know when you were listening to it earlier. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And his disciples, I'm sure, were very, very faithful in following the teaching that Jesus gave them. And so they began to earnestly pray, Oh God, there's a harvest out there that needs to be brought in. Would you please send laborers into the harvest to bring in that harvest of souls? And Jesus tricked his disciples. Because he said, oh, by the way, you're the ones that are going to go out there. What? Wait a minute. No, 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 no. I'm praying for that. I'm praying for God to do that. No, no, you are. And it literally says he called 12 people out of the group that was following him. And we don't know how many. We do know that at some point it was upwards of 100 to 150. But we know that Jesus took 12. Now, what's not here, it's in another gospel, it says that Jesus spent the night in prayer. He didn't just glibly go, okay, you and you and you and you. He literally spent the night in prayer. And then he came back and he said and called the 12 to himself. So let's read Matthew chapter 10 verses 1 through 4. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast out To cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Now, stop for a second. Go back up to verse 35 in chapter 9. 
Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. Then you go down to chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus gave his 12 disciples, which became known as apostles, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, gave them the authority to heal every disease, every disease to give them authority to heal every affliction. And then the names of those disciples are those apostles are these people. And you know we don't need to read through all the names. And if you if you know anything about the Gospels, you know that Matthew, Mark and Luke are known as the synoptic Gospels, which means they tell the same story from a different perspective, but they're all basically the same storyline. John is a different Gospel. It tells a different story, different perspective entirely. But Matthew, Mark and Luke follow each other. So if you were to take this section of Matthew, chapter five, chapter 10, verses 5 through 15, this next part, where Jesus is sending out his disciples, we're going to read through it in just a second. If you look at Mark chapter, um, Mark chapter, oh, I didn't, I didn't mark it down. Thank you. Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13, and then Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, they're basically the same story. So Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 15, Mark chapter 6, Verses 7 through 13, Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, all tell basically the same story. Now, what does it say? Let's look at what Mark chapter 10 says. Verse 5 to 15. These 12 Jesus sent out. What 12? The 12 that were just named in the verse just before. He sent them out and gave them these instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles Enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Stop. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, only is focused on bringing the kingdom of heaven to the, to the children of Israel. That does not mean that the gospel is not for the Samaritans. We can tell you that it is. If you just go to John chapter 4, you see where Jesus himself went to the Samaritans and brought the gospel. We can also, he also says, don't go to the Gentiles. But we see plenty of times throughout Jesus' ministry on the earth where Jesus went and spent time and ministered to Gentiles. So it wasn't that he was saying they can't have it. He's saying, for this mission that I'm sending you on right now, You are not to go anywhere but to this focused people group. I have a very specific reason for doing that. So follow me. Do what I tell you. Don't go outside of the parameters of this instruction. Then he said, verse 7, And proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, that's what Jesus was doing. If you go back up again, it says, verse 35, he was going into the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So Jesus is now commissioning his 12, saying, you go to the houses of Israel, proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse eight, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse leopards, cast out demons. You I mean, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, raise the dead. Jesus, you're giving us the power to raise the dead. Well, didn't Jesus raise the dead? I mean, what about Jairus's daughter who died? 
Um, it hasn't happened at this point in the story yet, but we know that he raises Lazarus, who was dead for four days in the tomb. Jesus literally imparts authority to his 12 apostles saying, you are going to have the same power that I have when it comes to healing, bringing back to life, cleansing lepers, even authority over the demonic. Then he says to them, verse 8, the second half, you received this gift without having to pay for it. I'm giving this to you. So it would be totally inappropriate for you to go and expect payment for your services when you go out into the community that I'm sending you to. Because see, in that culture, that's what normally would have happened. People who were great teachers, who were great healers, who were great skilled people of, and, and, and that had gatherings around them, they would come to villages or come to towns and they would have an expectation of, A, you're going to house me, you're going to feed me, and you're going to give me some money for the work I'm about to do in your place. And it was part of their culture. That's what was expected when somebody came to minister in their community. Jesus said to his disciples, I am giving you the greatest power. You're going to have a power and authority to do just about anything. And you better not ask a penny. It is not for you to get anything from this. You are giving. Verse 10. Excuse me, verse 9. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. What does that mean? He's saying, do not go to the bank and make a withdrawal so that you have some ready cash while you're on your trip. You don't worry about having cash while you're on your trip. As a matter of fact, you don't bring anything with you while you're on your trip. In addition to not having any money, don't even bring a bag to throw your junk in because you don't need no junk. You're not to bring two tunics. One will suffice. You just need to cover your body so you're not walking around naked. You don't need the second one. Well, why would they need a second one? Well, what happens if the first one got dirty? What happens if the first one got torn? There isn't like there's a laundromat on every corner. So they would have a second one in their, in their possession so that they could change it to something clean if their other one got messed up. Jesus said, no, don't even worry about bringing a second shirt. Don't bring, and it says sandals or staff, and I was reading one scholar that said, is he saying don't bring a second pair of sandals or don't wear sandals? I don't know. We're not giving clear understanding here. In my mind, I would think it don't bring a second pair of sandals. It also says don't even bring a staff. Why would they need a staff? For protection. They're out walking in the, in the wilderness between villages and wild animals might come upon them and they would use the staff to beat them off and keep them away. Or wild robbers, if you will. But Jesus is literally saying, don't even bring a staff with you. You just go with the shirt on your back. No money, no luggage, no extra food, no cat, no nothing. Just go. Verse 11, whatever town, oh, excuse me, the last part of verse 10, he said, the laborer deserves his food. Some of you that have your Bibles open, does your Bible say anything other than food at the end of verse, nine, uh, verse 10? His support, exactly. I'm sorry? Wages? Yeah, 
And what it is, is, is the idea of your support, your wages, your, your being cared for, your labor, you are worthy of that. And what, what Jesus is saying to them at this point is, you need to recognize that you're going to go with no visible means of support and no way to buy food. And, no, and you need to understand God is going to provide for you in a way that you've never experienced before. And you don't need to feel ashamed about that because the work that you're doing, you, have, you are worth it. So don't feel badly like you're stealing for anybody. Don't feel badly because you're taking something that's not yours. It is yours. You are a labor for the kingdom and you are worth your support. But you need to trust God to provide you that support. Okay? So verse 11 now says, And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. He didn't say find out who was the most wealthy. He didn't say find out who had the nicest house. He said find out who is worthy and stay with that person until you depart. In other words, set up headquarters in that town or in that village. As you enter the house, greet it. That was common. I don't know if you've ever seen it in movies or read it in books, but there, there's, this, um, there's this sense of, as you cross the threshold, it's like peace to all who, who live here. May the peace come into this house as I walk through your house. into your. So it's, it's, it's just a greeting, a, a blessing on the household. And so he says, as you enter the house, greet it. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. If it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. Verse 14, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Now, uh, and he says, truly, I say for you that it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for that for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now, what is this shaking off of the dust? Let me explain what's going on. It was cultural. Jewish people did not associate with Gentiles. Jewish people did not go into the homes of Gentiles. Jewish people didn't even like going outside of Israel because they were going into a place where they could be defiled. And so when people would travel outside of the nation of Israel, Jewish people back then, they would literally walk through the dirt dusty roads so dust would get on their shoes dust would get on the bottoms of their clothing and they would be walking through Samaria or they'd be walking through Tyre and Sidon when they came back to the to the boundary of the nation of Israel or Judah they would literally shake out their clothing and kick the dust off the bottom of their feet and step into Israel so that they didn't bring any defilement back with them I mean, it was a cultural practice. It's literally what they did. It's like sanitizing your hands after you come out of the bathroom. I don't want to bring any of that nastiness back out with me back into my environment. Same thing. They don't want, they were, they were literally knocking the dirt off of them. So Jesus is saying, when you go into a home and you begin trying to spread the gospel, the kingdom of heaven, telling them about and offering to them the power of God, if they are not worthy, if they refuse to receive it, as you leave, shake off anything that you got into while you were there. Does that make sense? It's not being rude or mean or unkind. It's like saying, I don't want that on me. Ew. Also, I don't want to feel badly because they were unkind to me or they were mean to me or they were uh, unwelcoming to me. I don't need to own any of that either. 
because I don't have time this morning to go into it. But if you go to the very end of chapter 10, Jesus talks about rewards. And he's saying, don't even worry about those people. Don't worry about reimbursing them. God will give them rewards. And those who don't get rewards is because they didn't offer. You know, if they, they, if they reward a preacher, they're going to get a preacher's reward. If they reward evangelists, they're going to get an evangelist's reward. If they go to prophet, they're going to get a prophet's reward. And you can read that for yourself later on. But I wanted to focus this idea on being sent out, these 12 guys. And it says that they went out in pairs, which was a normal thing. Um, again, in Jewish culture, it says that testimony can only be taken by the word of two or three witnesses. So it makes sense to have two people go proclaiming any one thing, because then it's, a, uh, it's, it's more, readily ava- more readily likely to be received as truth. Now, The thing that's sad for me as I read this passage out of Matthew is I see Jesus commissioning these guys. I see Jesus empowering these guys. And then we never get the story. We never actually see what happened. They were given power to raise from the dead. Wouldn't it be cool if Simon Peter, the guy who stepped out of the boat, who walked on water, actually got to go into a funeral home and go, be alive. That would be so cool. And I would have loved to have been able to see that story and hear his response. Can you imagine? You're walking along and Simon goes, be alive. And the guy sits up and he goes, whoa, whoa, wow, it works. (laughs) But imagine the first time that they do it, it's new. But more and more as they're doing it, they're recognizing, indeed, there is something to this. This isn't just words that Jesus spoke over, but truly, there's power here. Now, let me, hey, do I want to go here? Jesus, when he was walking in a crowd, a woman came crawling up behind him who had been suffering with bleeding for 12 years. And she said, if I could just touch the tassels, his prayer shawl, if I could just touch that part of his garment, I know I'll be healed. So she sneaks up behind him while he's walking through this crowd and reaches in and grabs a hold of the tzitzit, the tassels on his prayer shawl. And Jesus, it says, stopped and said, who touched me? And his disciples are like, what do you mean, who touched you? You're in a crowd. Everyone's touching you. He said, no, 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 no. Power left me. Glory left me. What's going on? I'm not going to let somebody take this without acknowledging what God has done in their life. And at that point, the woman identifies herself. And then Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Blah, 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 blah. So Jesus, without knowing that this woman was present, without knowing that the woman was touching his garment in faith, Jesus felt the power and the glory, leave him and go to that woman, provide healing. I believe that same power, glory was felt by the disciples. We're not given that. But in my mind, it makes sense. So we've got these 12 guys now, six groups of two, walking around the community, zapping people with the power of God. It's so cool. And like I said, unfortunately, Matthew didn't give us any hint of what happened in that story. But Luke did. 
So let's look at Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm actually pushing it here, but we'll get over it. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, and then 17 through 20. Now, before we go there, remember I said the calling of the apostles and the empowering of the apostles was Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, when Jesus sent the 12 apostles out. But if then you come to chapter 10, it says, verses 1 through 12, after this, the Lord appointed 72 of his followers and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So literally, Jesus sent these pairs into 36 towns and villages to prepare the way for him to come and to teach. And Jesus said to them, the harvest is plentiful. Remember, go back to nine. It said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers out into the field to harvest the souls. So Jesus said in verse two of chapter 10 of Luke, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter to, say first say, peace be to this house. See, it's exactly the same instructions. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Remain in that same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide for the labor deserves his wages. See, it's exactly the same. The difference is he did it first with 12. Now he's doing it with 72. Verse 7, continuing, do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it. Say to them, the kingdom of God has come very near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Exactly the same story. Exactly the same thing. The difference is, started out first with only six, oh, six groups of two. Now it's 36 groups of two doing exactly the same ministry. Then if you go to chapter 10, verse 17, it says, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So now we hear a little bit about what actually happened. And he said to them, listen to this. Jesus said to the 72, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Wouldn't it have been cool to be part of that group of 72 people? To have been commissioned and empowered by the Lord Jesus Christ? To have power over illness? To have power over demons? To have power over death? And to, to proclaim to the people who are out there who are looking for something to hope in, the kingdom of heaven is very near. All you need to do is receive him when he comes to you. 
and let's show you how we know. Get up, dead person. No more leprosy. Look at you, you little child. Now you can look at them. This is what they did, literally. And they didn't take any money for it. Which showed that they were sincere and not showmen. Which showed that they weren't trying to gain anything from this. They were just doing it for the glory of God. Now, let me take you back a week. And I'm sick because my sermon did not record last week. But one of the things that I said to you last week was spiritual formation is being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. See, if all it meant for, if all of our, if our telos, if our, if our end, if our only reason for being was to get saved, we would be zapped off the face of the earth seconds after we accepted Christ. Because if that's our telos, if that's what God wants for us, then our whole purpose is fulfilled at that moment. He can take us home. But most of us who name Christ aren't zapped off the face of the earth. There's only been two that I know of. Enoch and Elisha. Elijah. So why are we still here? Because we're supposed to be becoming more and more Christ-like. Why? So that we can be holy. No! So that others can see Christ in us and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Why? Because they don't know Him. And they aren't looking for Him. But they can see you. And they can understand the power of God through you. Wouldn't it be cool if God would empower you with His very presence, His very Spirit, to give you authority over darkness, to give you authority over flavorlessness, to give you authority over demons, to give you authority over illness, to give you authority to bring hope? Oh, wait a minute, He did. So how many of you are actually walking in that? No, you're not apostles. Only certain people get called apostles, but all of you are disciples. And see, it wasn't just 12 apostles that got sent out with that authority. It was 72 disciples who got sent out with that authority. See, it's for all of us. And let me tell you why it's for all of us. Jesus could not be, because he was a physical human being, he could not be in all places at all times. So he literally sent workers out to prepare so that he could come quickly and go through and bring a harvest. Because if he had spent all of his time in one area, there would have been people who never heard the message. And so the same thing happens for us now. Imagine the myriad, the, the thousands upon thousands, the millions upon millions of Christians who are literally going into the areas of their community that normally wouldn't hear the gospel, normally wouldn't have the light of Christ, normally wouldn't have the power of God around them, can be seen and have it be demonstrated in their presence. If we will just be faithful to do what we're gifted and called to do. Now, let me tell you a little story. Bob and Renee were out running errands on Friday or Thursday? Friday. 
Bob had to take somebody to the hospital early in the morning for a medical procedure. And then Bob came home and got Renee after he dropped the person off at their home from, the, from getting their procedure done. And then Bob picked up Renee, and then we went out driving around town, and we were doing the different things. We had to go to the food bank. We had to go pick up this. We had to go pick up supplies. We had to go pick up a cake for some reception we're doing after church today. Just a bunch of stuff that we had to do. All of a sudden, Bob sees an advertisement that the lobby of the Sonic drive-in restaurant is open, and my wife loves Sonic. So I don't really care for it, but she loves Sonic. And so when she gets out of the food bank or wherever she was, I said, did you happen to notice Sonic's lobby is open? She went, we're going there for lunch. Yeah. So we walk in. Have you guys been to the new Sonic restaurant in Fairbanks? It's basically the Carl's Jr. And now that the lobby's open, it's literally just the Carl's Jr. The one difference is where the counter was where you would go to order your food, there's now a wall. You can't see or even hear the kitchen. You walk straight in to where they used to have, the Carl's Jr. was their drink fountain station. That's now a counter that a person sits at with a computer, two people, and they take your order, and then you go from there to your seat, and then somebody comes out of the kitchen, one of the bell hops, the car hops, with a tray and goes, Bob! And he comes over, and he hands you your stuff, and takes your payment, and then goes back and processes it and brings back your change. So it's just like being in your car in their little drive-in stalls. Except, so the cashier thingy doesn't exist. It's just go to the front, order your food, and go sit down, and we'll bring it out to you, and we'll process the payment back later on. So that's the way it works now. So the drive through can't be used in Fairbanks because it's too cold. So now they've got their lobby open, so Renee can go have Sonic. Yay! So we walk in. And we are looking around, and there's the lady sitting at the counter where she's ready to take her order. And we walk up, and instead of greeting us with a, hi, welcome to Sonic, she says, do you people know how to break jinxes? Do you people know how to break a jinx? Have you ever been asked that question? (laughs) Especially at a fast food restaurant? I haven't. I've been a Christian for almost 45 years. I've never had somebody ask me, do you know how to break a jinx? And I just went, all right, I'll go there. And I looked behind me to see if there was a line. There wasn't. There was nobody else in line. I looked at the woman. I said, well, I'm a pastor in this town. And if you're willing, I'd be glad to pray for you to break this jinx. And she said, really? You'd pray for us? I said, I'd be glad to pray for you. And so Renee and I and this woman bowed our heads and we prayed. Now, I didn't say, oh, Jesus, please break the jinx. Oh, God, please help this person to not feel like they're cursed anymore. That's not what I did. I said, Father God, you have declared in your word that you have authority over all darkness. You have authority because you are the almighty and all-knowing and all-powerful and only God. You are the God above gods. And Father, by the name of Jesus, through the blood of Christ and the power of your Holy Spirit, I come against the forces of darkness that are tormenting this young woman. And I ask you in the name of Jesus to break this darkness now. And then I went, Oh, God, what did I just do? Because <laughs> I thought, what if it doesn't happen? What if it doesn't happen? And the Lord was like, stop that. 
Number one, you're a Christian. Number two, you're a minister. Number three, you're an ordained minister. And number four, you have authority. Knock it off. Okay, sir. And then we got our order done and we went back to the table. And Renee went, you're braver than me. And I said, it wasn't bravery. I truly felt empowered. I truly, I mean, I, I intentionally looked behind me to make sure that I wasn't holding anybody else up in line. We were really the only three there. Everybody else was around their tables elsewhere. It was just us three. We weren't being loud and demonstrative. But I had an opportunity to represent God like I haven't had an opportunity to represent God in a long time. And it was somebody who was dealing with darkness, who was asking for help. And as I was preparing, as I was preparing this sermon, God said, that's how it's supposed to be. That's why you're on this earth. And it's not just me, it's you guys. We are so afraid of causing offense. We are so afraid of looking the fool. We are so afraid of not having the right answer at the right moment. Well, do you know what? If you read chapter 10, which we're not going to take the time this morning to do it, but I encourage you to do it this week. Read chapter 10, because what Jesus says to his apostles as he's giving them these instructions before they go out, he says, you're going to be called before kings. You're going to be called before governors. You're going to be called before the Sanhedrin, and they're going to hate you. And what you need to do is you need to stand there in confidence and not even worry about what you're going to say because your Father who is in heaven is going to speak through you. Well, I own that for myself. When I stand in a place of darkness, I don't have to worry about having a prepared, memorized prayer or being able to memorize 17 verses and quote them out loud to get them right so that I can break darkness. All I have to do is stand in the authority that I have as a child of God who stands clean before God because of the blood of Christ, who knows that the Holy Spirit of God is present with me, empowering me and speaking through me to destroy the work of darkness. And I encourage you people, do it. It's a great feeling. It's like Peter going, come back to life. It worked! Woohoo! And the other thing, this is, I almost lost it sitting over here this morning. As we were praying, I'm worshiping and singing, and I was like, God, I want this. I just want to be in your presence. I want to love you. I want to feel your love. I just want to spend time with you. And he said, this is good, but this isn't why you're here. You're here because you're my hands and my feet and my voice, and you've got to go out there. Because if all you do is sit here and love on me, there will be people going to hell because the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. Let's pray. Woo! (laughs) Glory to your holy name. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Father God, I give you praise and I give you honor and I give you glory. And Lord, I just ask that you would not only use me 
continually, but that you would raise up harvesters to go out in the dark fields and win those souls. It's nothing that we have to do other than be faithful and obedient. You'll do the convincing. You'll do the convicting. You'll even give us the words to say. We just have to be available and willing. Help us, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.